grab your popcorn and snacks, find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Hey, good evening, good afternoon, everybody. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> My button didn't want to work. How's everybody doing on this fine on this fine Wednesday afternoon? Good. I'm glad you're doing great because I am too. Uh, my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour, and I've got a great guest set up today. Uh, I'm I'm a former crime courts reporter for a major newspaper here here in California, and uh, stories like this get me right in the heart. I've, I've covered a lot of uh, murder, you know. Uh, I've covered a lot of homicides. I've covered a lot of other types of stories, but when I hear about stuff like this, it, it really it really reaches me, you know, and. Uh, my guest today, uh, J.T. Hunter, has a great, great book out on the Gainesville Ripper, and we're going to be talking about that today. Anyway, I am the owner and operator of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento. We are 48 strong up and down the state, which means if you have a paranormal issue, we can get to you because we have somebody in the area, right? A good way to get a hold of us is CaliforniaHaunts.org, CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. Or just on Facebook, because I'm everywhere on Facebook, whether it's under my own name or California Haunts related stuff or whatever. So you can check us out there. Right now, if you're watching from Facebook, please hit that follow button. If you're watching from Twitter, please hit that follow button. If you're watching from Twitch, please hit that follow button. And the follow button, of course, at TikTok, because we are on TikTok. i got to scratch real quick. But again, I want to welcome everybody here. Just a quick announcement. We will, I will be teaching a psychic development class one on this Saturday at three at 5 p.m. Pacific. So if you're interested in basic psychic development, um, we can do that. That would be great. Uh, he was there and now he's gone. So if you're interested in basic psychic development, we can do that. And that would be at 5 p.m. Pacific on Saturday. And gather my thoughts. And uh, you can sign up for that over at the California Haunts uh, Paranormal Investigation Team Meetup page. All right. Also, um, the following Saturday on the tenth, we're going to be teaching Psychic Development Class Two on that, on, on you know, for for the classes. So that'll be also on that page. You can check it out again. The California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team Meetup page. Hello. Hey, Charlotte. Hey, JT. How's it going? Hey. Good. We must, technical difficulties. Yeah, we must have the same security settings on our phones. Because <laughs> mine goes on to silent, you know, goes on to silence everything, and then the phone will ring, and then it stops. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, good. I'm glad we finally got you. Yeah, the uh, I can see you on the on the the other link thing, but I just couldn't hear anything. Yeah, it, it happens. That's why that's why I always have a backup for the phone number and stuff, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so tell me about you, sir. Um, well, I, uh, I've been writing true crime books, I don't know, for quite a few years now. Um, and I have about eight or nine of them that are out there circulating around. And um, when I'm not doing that, I teach... Um, at the state college 
and um, you know I teach creative writing is one of the classes I teach, and uh, you know nonfiction writing. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I don't know. That's about it, I guess. So how do you? Because um, I used to be a crime beat reporter back in the old days. So how does one get into doing this? You know what you do? Because I know I would do it because of course my background. But how, how does someone like you get into doing this stuff? Well, I had always been interested in trying to write a book at some point. You know, it, it was kind of like one of those things on my kind of my list of things I wanted to do sort of thing. And, um, you know, I just, you know, never really came across anything or had any ideas that seemed like they would merit putting into a, a book, book length treatment sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But then I eventually, my dad, uh, told me about this guy that had been arrested and, gone to trial and all this sort of stuff over where, where he lived mm-hmm. uh, and told me his name and a little bit about it. And so I, you know, I Googled the name, looked it up, read a little bit about it and thought it was a pretty interesting case. And so I thought, well, heck, this is as good a time as any to get into it. So I decided I'd, you know, I'd write a book about it. And, um, you know, it, it helped that he actually knew the detective that had worked the case that had been in charge of the case. So he put me in charge with him. He put me in um, contact with him. And, uh, you know, I, I, st- I worked with that detective in writing the book and that was my first, that was my first one, that was true crime book. And then it just kind of went from there. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, you've got a lot of good crime books out, you know. Um, tell me a little bit about the, about the Gainesville uh, Ripper. I mean, how, how, on the background check you did on this guy, was he a normal guy before he, he started all this or was stuff you know you know how some of these killers like this they're do they're torturing animals and stuff when they're kids yeah i mean he wasn't he wasn't doing the torturing animal thing but he did you know there were things in his background like a lot of these guys have he had he had a lot of family issues in his background there was a lot of abuse in the family in his background um you know both physical and mental and uh, there was mental disease that ran in his family, and uh, you know I think that's a, a, a big part of what forged him into what he became. So, um, you know, from that, what was his first killing, and you know, how old was he when he started? Well, he he, he kind of um, you know like a lot of criminals tend to do. Uh, Rowling kind of graduated, escalated his crimes. He started out peeping in windows, peeping, you know, watching women undress and stuff mm-hmm. like that in their, their houses. And that he started out when he was a teenager, around, you know, 13, 14 years old. Mm-hmm. And he kind of graduated from that and eventually went on to start committing rapes um, when he was in his 20s. And, um, you know, also started doing robberies along the way as well. And then eventually, you know, he committed his first murder, which was in uh, 1989 was his first murder. He killed a, he killed a, a family of three in Louisiana. And, um, you know, from there, he went on to do the, the murders that he's 
I guess, infamous, more infamous for, which was the, the Gainesville killings, the killings of the five college students in Gainesville, which was the next year in 1990. I just, I, I find it interesting when, when you look into the mind of a criminal, you know, of somebody like that, because, you know, you just wonder what, what really goes through their mind when, when, when they decide they're going to do this, or if it's, or as they say, premeditated or, or whatever. I mean, I mean, five people, that's a lot of people. Yeah, he killed the five in Gainesville over a three-day period. And, um, you know, it's kind of just an interesting little trivia while I'm thinking about it. The, um, you know the movie Scream? Mm-hmm. The Ormery Scream. So, so the guy who wrote Scream actually got the idea for that uh, based on the, the Gainesville murders. He was watching the news one night, and a story ran on the murders, and kind of took that and converted that into the screenplay for for scream uh kind of an interesting little factoid there but um but as far as uh as far as rolling he um he he said that he um he basically kind of made a, a deal with like a demonic sort of force while he was in prison mm-hmm. and he, you know rolling he, he felt like he felt like the world had mistreated him. He had been mistreated by his father and he had a lot of anger and he wanted, you know, he, he wanted revenge basically on um, like on his father, but also just in general. And when he was, he said when he was in prison, he, he struck this deal with this demonic force. And basically as part of that, he, agreed or decided that he was going to kill a certain number of people and um this demonic force was going to help him do that and he ended up having all these different personalities he said because of it so when he finally got or once he got caught were they able to identify the personalities or did he actually have them well he told he told authorities about the personalities you know he claimed that well he had his 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 you know there's danny um then he had a, a a jesse james sort of side of danny um that he called uh he, he spelled it uh danny backwards so like enid i guess y-n-n-a-d um and then there was another one he called jim and i which was the one that was the most evil of all of them i guess you could say it's the one that you know he claimed was the one that was in control when he committed the murders this is fascinating to me um so how, how did he get arrested then well i mean after the murders he kept committing bank robberies around the area it's kind of how he supported himself so he was committing robberies in the that central, north central Florida area, not, you know, not too far away from, from Gainesville. And mm-hmm. he committed a, a robbery of a, of a Winn-Dixie, actually, in Ocala, Florida, and ended up getting arrested after a car chase. There was a big car chase, and then he got arrested after that. And when he was arrested, you know, the police had no idea who he was. They had no idea what he had done. They had no idea that he was the, the Gainesville Ripper. Uh, they just thought he was this, you know, guy that robbed robbed a Winn Dixie. And uh, you know, he ended up staying in in jail there in, in Florida for quite some time before he was ever linked to those those killings. 
was he married or anything like that or was or was he a loner yeah no he was married earlier on uh he, he when he was still pretty young he met a um, he met a young woman at a, at a church he was going to at the time and he married her back in it was after he got out of the air force so it was about 1974 he married her Mm-hmm. And they actually had a daughter the next year. Um, but then within a few years, his wife left him and, um, you know, served divorce papers on him. Yeah, I find it. And, you know, he, he, looking back, he said that's what drove him to start committing rapes. It's okay. Kind of a, you know, an anger, revenge sort of thing. That's what I was just going to talk about. And, you know, it's interesting because he, he had, a you know, a fairly normal life. As, as as an adult yeah i mean he could easily pass as you know quote normal person um but he had this background that led him to want to do bad things you mm-hmm. know he was he had a, there was a there was an ex- extensive abusive background uh by his father <clears throat> when he was growing up um there's all kinds of instances of his father beating him and purposely, you know, humiliating him and um, all sorts of things that when he was growing up, both when he was, you know, a younger child and both when he was a teenager, that that all, you know, kind of combined to, to drive him to do what he did. It's just sad that, you know, like nowadays, there's so much help out there for people to, you know, to, to reach out. And it's just sad that that he didn't, you know, decide to reach out even when he was going to school and stuff, because I know there's counselors in school that would help. Yeah, I mean, he actually had the opportunity to seek help. And, and you know, in fact, his his wife, back when they were still married, his wife tried to get him to to go see a, a counselor. Mm-hmm. And he, he didn't want to do it. You know, he had, he had no interest in it. He shut that all down. And, you know, if he had gone, you know, who's to say maybe, maybe it would have helped him and maybe... The things he did never would have come about. Oh right, right, right. So let's go back to that when when he was married. So did what did she notice while she was married to him? Or, or do you have details of that? Well, he would uh, he would leave at times without really letting her know where he would be, and he would be gone. You know, sometimes for for days, mm-hmm. um, and before coming back, and and you know, obviously that's something that didn't sit well with her, and that's big reason why she ended up leaving him is she mm-hmm. got tired of these unannounced disappearances and you know did them just kind of showing up out of the blue again mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so what um is, is there any uh word on what he was doing when he would disappear well he was he was certainly he was doing his peeping stuff sure you know, peeping, peeping peeping in windows and things like that um but yeah, there's nothing to indicate that any of the more violent things would start again. Uh, you know, the, like I said, the, the the real violent acts didn't start occurring until after the after the divorce. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. See, I always find it interesting that they could live somewhat. And I'm not saying he was normal because he was disappearing all the time, but somebody could be married like that and have a kid, and you know, and then after it's all, you know later on or during that time be, be committing these horrendous crimes. Yeah, that's something that's always fascinated me as well. And a lot of the, the a lot of the serial killers that I've written about, 
Uh, that's one of the things that always interests me and, you know, how they're able to, to fool everybody. And, you know, there was, there was one guy in particular, Israel Keys, that, you know, he told after he was caught, he told the law enforcement that he was, he was really proud of the fact that he was able to fool people for so long. You know, nobody had any clue that he was doing these other, other things and, Everybody just thought he was just this, you know, kind of nice guy and, um, you know, family man. And, mm -hmm. you know, he went to the parent teacher meetings for his child and, and things like that. And no one was had any sort of clue or indication at all that, that it was something other than that. So he was really kind of boastful about that. Um, so, yeah, that's that's the thing that's always interested me is that, that how they're able to, to do that. And, you know, and Danny Pauling was able to do that as well and um you know there was no there was no indication that he was doing the violent things he was doing you know he had a he had a history of, of robberies and things like that but you know we're talking about like grocery stores and gas stations sure. and things like that not you know not not physically accosting anyone or attacking people or raping people or killing people that all that all came later of course but mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So was he working a, a, a job at this time, or was he just li li you know living off the robberies and stuff? Um, yeah, when he was doing all the robberies, he was basically living off of those. He, you know, he did take jobs here and there. Um, you know, in fact, the when he committed his first murder, it happened the same night that he was fired from, from a job he had. He was he was working at a at a restaurant in Louisiana, a Mexican restaurant, mm -hmm. and he was fired for not showing up to work when he was supposed to. And um, it was kind of the last straw for him. And, uh, you know, he went out and later that night ended up committing his first murder, which is that family of three. Wow. Um, which, you know, I mean, just the fact that he gets fired from employment seems quite a big jump to go murder a family of three because of that. But, you know, you just got to kind of keep in mind that there was a lot going on prior to that. So mm -hmm. it was all kind of building up, and that was, mm -hmm. you know, kind of the, the camel, the straw that broke the camel's back. Well, you say he was in prison before. Um, was it because of it, any types of murders, or was the family of three, or did he get? A, I mean, did he get caught for the family of three, and then move on to these other murders, or how that work? No, he sort he, he was in prison for the robberies. Okay, uh, and. And he had a terrible experience in prison. He, he served his time in a really harsh prison uh, called Parchment Prison uh, in uh, in Louisiana, and um, that really, you know, kind of fueled the fire mm -hmm. as far as him wanting this anger and stuff building up in him. And uh, the murders didn't happen until after that. He he got released from prison in uh, got paroled in 80, 1988. And then, you know, next year, 1989, is when he killed the family. So, there were... and so he didn't, so he wasn't, you know, they had no idea who did it. Right. Uh, who killed that family. He, you know, he, he wasn't caught, obviously. And nobody had any clue that he was involved with it until, until much, much later. Until, you know, well after the, the Gainesville murders. So really, there, there, there were no outward signs that he could be capable of killing. I mean, he was just more, more you know, at that point, he, he was more into just robbing people and stuff. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, you know, and he had a side of him that was very, um, you know, almost, almost gentle kind of side where he could be very charming if he wanted to be and that mm -hmm. sort of, you know, like a lot of these guys. Are. Sure. 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 
So would you say that he was, um, what's the word for it, uh, like Bundy? I mean, because Bundy could could live a normal life too. So, so sociopath. Yeah, I mean, he he certainly had those sorts of characteristics, and he he could, you know, like like Bundy. You know, Bundy's like the kind of the the model for that. Yeah, for everybody. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, and for you know, and of course Bundy, you know, he's you know a good looking guy and, and all that, and you know, he's famous for the all these women that followed him and went to his trials and things like. You know, he almost had his like little little movie set and things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, Rowling wasn't quite that caliber as far as the good looks and things, but, you know, he wasn't, I guess, a bad-looking guy, and he definitely had uh, had his own women fans. And, in fact, uh, there was a woman who uh, got romantically involved with him while he was in in prison in Florida, you know, after he'd been arrested for the Gainesville murders and connected to those. And, um, and actually, it's, I write about that kind of that relationship is was included in the in the book I wrote about it as well. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it makes you wonder, I mean I you know, I, I have friends that are involved with with criminals. I mean, so there's sometimes it just happens that way, but it, when somebody like kill that does does a lot of murders like that, it makes you wonder what type of person goes in and does that. You know, gets involved with somebody like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's um I'm not quite sure why she did um maybe it was to have some media attention Mm -hmm. a little bit of fame maybe she was just fascinated with these type of individuals because she had actually had a relationship with another serial killer before him um and then you know basically left that guy to go be with rolling so she she was definitely interested in these type of people interesting so doing your research was it difficult um some some parts of it were um but i actually the the timing of it was pretty fortuitous for me because when i contacted the uh alachua county sheriff's office there you know to get to see what sort of materials they had about the case they were actually getting ready to start the process of of purging their whole file on it Mm -hmm. so I was able to get a hold of that before they destroyed all that. Um, so the, the timing was really good because otherwise that stuff would have been gone, you know, forever and I never would have been able to see it. But so I was able to go over there to, uh, to Gainesville and I spent, you know, the better part of the day over there one day going through all these files and they had, I mean, they had uh, mountains of files of this stuff. It was just, you know, we're not talking about just like a few bankers boxes and stuff. Mm-hmm. This was, this was, this was huge. I mean, it was, it was, um, like multiple rows of, of those, you know, those big um, cabinets that you can put stuff on and, and, and just boxes and boxes and boxes of stuff, in these things, and just, just a ton of stuff. So there was a, a, a lot of uh, information there, you know, almost too much in some respects. But um, so, you know, it, it's hard in the sense that there's so much of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on the flip side of it, it, it's nice to have all that there to be able to actually go through. Right. How did he get access to the college students? Was was it similar to how Bundy did it? Was the doors were unlocked, just walking in? He broke into their okay, you know their apartments. So the, you know the, the first killing, he, he broke into their apartment at night. You know it's like in the wee hours of the morning, you mm-hmm. know three a.m. or something thereabouts, and 
working while they were sleeping. And then the second murder, he uh, he did the same thing. He broke into the young lady's house while she was gone and then waited for her in her own house. And then, you know, grabbed her after she came in. And then the uh, the other two, the fourth and fifth murders, it was just the same sort of thing. He broke into an apartment. Okay, okay, interesting. And, of course, there were witnesses that saw him? No, there were no witnesses that saw him commit the murders or saw him coming and going. So how were they able to, uh, you know, be able to arrest him? Well, after he was caught for the robbery in Ocala, he was, you know, basically just awaiting his trial for that in in jail. And uh, what ended up happening was that uh, Louisiana detectives noticed a bunch of similarities between the Gainesville murders and the murder that happened there in Louisiana, that family of three. There were a lot of of similarities there. And they they picked up on a bunch of those and uh, they reached out to the Gainesville law enforcement uh-huh. and, you know, said, look, you know, there's your, your, your cases have a lot of the same sort of crime scene characteristics as ours does. And after hearing that, the, the Gainesville authorities um, wanted to look into, uh, into this rolling guy because, um, you know, someone had brought up the possibility that he could have been involved with Louisiana murders. And so, uh-huh. Um, what happened was a a a, 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 a while Rolling was in prison, he was having an issue with a tooth, so he had a tooth pulled in prison. And the authorities were able to get a hold of that tooth and did some DNA testing on it, and through that they were able to to link him to uh, the murders. It's incredible how they can do that stuff. Yeah, that's really uh, it worked out. You know, it worked out nicely. Just that he happened to have this tooth issue and that was able to they were able to get that after it was pulled so you know they didn't because you know they didn't have enough at the time to really force them to do it mm-hmm. to give dna evidence but um the, you know the fact that he had voluntarily had a tooth pulled they were able to then go access that tooth. so what happens in the situation where uh somebody you know murders somebody in one state and then he murders somebody in another state How's the trial handled? Does he go to both states to, to be on trial, or can they put it all together in one? Well, they don't. They wouldn't put them all together in one mm-hmm. different jurisdictions. But it really, it kind of depends on the jurisdiction involved, and depends on how strong the case is mm-hmm. that he's going to trial for first. So, you know, for if there's a case. If in the first trial, the prosecutors have a really strong case and it's a murder trial and he's going to get the death penalty from that case, um, then, you know, if that prosecution is successful, then a lot of times they won't bother um, prosecuting him from the other jurisdictions. Um, And, you know, that's what ended up happening here. He he actually didn't even go to a full trial because he ended up uh, admitting to the killings, um, including the Louisiana killings. Um, so it never actually went to a full trial, um, but when you know, once he did that, once he got the death penalty, there, you know, the Louisiana authorities decided there was no real reason to pursue their case anymore. And he used a knife, correct? I'm sorry, what'd you say? He used a knife. Yes, yes, he used a, a military-style knife. It's pretty, pretty big knife. 
uh, K-Bar, K-Bar knife is what it's called. And it's actually a knife that's specifically designed, like I said, for the military. And it's designed to, uh, in, in, to cause the most damage possible. Um, there's actually a, a, uh, indention in the, in the blade that runs the length of the blade that's designed to let, uh, you know, let the blood flow out after you, after the stab is made. So mm-hmm. it's a real big, sharp, almost, almost a Rambo kind of knife. I don't know if you remember the knife that Rambo had, but it's, uh, you know, the similar, similar blade like that, really big blade. Um, and, uh, he used that for all of the, all of the killings. So they, these are, you know, so these are, these are really bloody, gruesome murder sites. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And did he go in when they were sleeping or, or did he go in during the day or? No, he went in while they were asleep. He broke in the apartments while they were sleeping, you know, really, really early in the morning, you know, it's still, you know, the, the after midnight hours. So, mm-hmm. uh, he, he broke in there while they were sleeping and he, uh, killed one of well they i mean they're all awake when he actually killed them mm-hmm. but um you know he woke them up and, and killed them hmm and was he taking any kind of drugs or anything that would that, that would add to the you know stuff going on in his brain or or what no he wasn't wasn't taking drugs at the time um you know he was sure he was drinking beer or whatnot but sure. he wasn't uh, he wasn't wasn't doing drugs it always, I mean, even with what he went through as a kid with his father and stuff, it always makes me wonder what it takes for someone to snap to get to that point to where you can go in like this with a big knife and kill people. Yeah, I mean, we've seen it would take an awful lot. I mean, there, there's a lot in his background, um, but there's probably also something genetically going on there, mm-hmm. you know, in his brain. You know, they've, you know, I, I know more recently they've done these. MRI studies of all these brains and they've, you know, they found that uh, in a lot of these cases, these people that end up becoming serial killers, that their, their parts of their brain aren't as, uh, I I guess you could say developed as, Mm -hmm. you know, people's brains, these aren't serial killers. And so they're missing certain things there that I guess kind of act as inhibitors on that sort of behavior. Um, so that's, you know, that's part of it. And then, if you combine that with these sort of uh, environmental factors, you know, of, of this abusive, really bad abusive background, and mm-hmm. that, that, that sort of mixture together is, is what you end up with. I've seen that study, and that study was really fascinating, you know, when you do compare the brains. Yeah, I mean, one of the, one of the guys doing it, um, doing the MRI studies actually found out that his brain <laughs> had, had, you know it was like a serial killer's brain basically he, he found out and uh, he kind of traced back through his family history and saw that there were actually killers in his family history uh, so yeah it was a really interesting study yeah i remember that you know what strikes me too with with, with these guys is that you know they can they can sneak in and sneak out so easily you know in these cases where there's like with these college people you think that somebody would have at least screamed yeah and, and you know sometimes people think they hear something but you know if it's if it's that time at night you know most people are either asleep or they're if they're woken up by the sound you know you're, you're not really fully awake yet so you don't really know what it is you heard uh, that's you know so doing it at that time of day it 
you know, he's able to, able to, like you said, slip in, slip out of there with anyone seeing him or anyone noticing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And since he admitted to uh, doing this stuff, how, how long did the trial take to convict him? Well, so he didn't actually go to a, a full trial. Okay. Uh, he was he was indicted by a grand jury, um, and then he ended up confessing before the the trial started. Um, and so he just went to a uh, it was actually a jury selection is when he pled guilty to it, mm-hmm. confessed to it, pled guilty to it. Um, so then it was just a matter of sentencing. So you know there was uh, the sentencing aspect of it didn't last uh, super long. Like he he confessed to it in January of uh, 1994. And then he formally pled guilty to it the next month in February, which was the jury selection I mentioned. Mm -hmm. And then he was actually sentenced two months later. So in April is when he actually was was sentenced to to death. You know, I think with guys like this too, I think sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes they want to admit to this stuff because they, they know if they get out, they're going to do it again. Yeah, I mean, I think there are there, there are some of them like that, um, and I think in, in Rowling's case, he he kind of wanted the the fame, so to speak, that that came with it. He 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 actually said one time that he really enjoyed being no you know known for these killings and stuff. Mm-hmm. So he kind, of, mm-hmm. he kind of enjoyed that whole all the attention being put on him. Well, you know, so I, I can kind of see that. I mean, with the childhood that he had, that's what he wanted. You know, that, that that's what he was craving. And so the only way he figured he could do it was by killing people. Yeah, I mean, it could, it could have been a, a way for him to one of, you know, kind of make his mark or make a name for himself or make up for not having the attention he, he wanted when he was younger, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, who knows what's really going on, you know, inside the inside the head of these these folks? And you know, I don't even think they know. Right, right. Because you see that in a lot of these cases with with, with these serial killers, that's what they want is the notoriety. Yeah, a lot of them certainly seem to enjoy it. Um, when you look back on your research on this case, what was the thing that that kind of scared you? I mean, everybody that does research, there's always something, especially when you're looking into something like this, there's always something that, that kind of makes you sit back down and, t- and take a breath. What was it with him? Well, the, I would say it's the just how violent these crime scenes were, how, how, how violent the killings were and the what he was able to do, just the nature of the crimes, the fact that he was able to do these things to these people. I mean, you know, th- these were, I mean, it wasn't a situation where, you know, somebody shoots somebody, mm-hmm. you know, this is, this is very up close. This is very bloody, uh, really horrific murders. And, you know, in one of the cases he actually, um, eviscerated the girl and then decapitated her. And, you know, put her head on the, basically on the dresser, you know, so that it was staring back at her body on the bed, you know, wow. that sort of thing. So, so you know, there's a lot of really gruesome stuff going on. So that, you know, that would be the really, as far as, you know, the, the kind of the scariest part. Of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That also, in, 
interests me and amazes me in that, you know, there's a lot of reports of these guys where they will set the faces up or they'll, they'll set the eyes to watching them. Like it's a big deal to have, you know, the, 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 like they have an audience when they're doing this stuff. And it's scary. Yeah. I mean, again, that goes to whatever is going on in their head as far as what's motivating this behavior. And, you know, some of them, I guess, enjoy the thought of having an audience. But I guess he wasn't, you know, obviously he left the bodies where they were after he killed them. He wasn't one of these that would take it back with him, right? Yes. I mean, he did. He did take sort of some souvenirs, but he actually got rid of them pretty quick, too. Like, you know, one of the one of the Gainesville killings, he actually cut the nipples off one of the girls and put them with him. But then I ended up, you know, discarding them shortly thereafter. He didn't keep them for the long. Interesting. See, I just find this so fascinating, you know, to, to get, like I said earlier, to get into the heads of these guys, because it's just, it's just so, for, for the normal person, it's just so un unbelievable that somebody could do that. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's what keeps the interest in these sorts of stories, you know, going on. And that's what drives the true crime um, genre, you know, is, is people are just... It, 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 it's like it's like multiple things going on at once you know on, on the one hand it's it's very um disturbing and very traumatic and, and um you know just just almost repulsive but then on the other hand it's also attracts you because it's so it's so um hard to understand and there's a, mm -hmm. there's a need and a want to understand it so mm -hmm. you know that's i think what keeps people coming back to it Plus, you know, it'd be different if the guy looked like the Night Stalker. You know what I mean? I mean, when you look at the Night Stalker, he's scary. <laughs> but when you yeah, look at someone yeah, like this, or you yeah, look at... He, look, he looks like a bad dude. Does he? Yeah. Exactly. When, you, when you look at people, I mean, yeah. You know, you, you try the stereotype in, in how they look, right? And that's what's scary yeah. with these guys. Yeah, they're just able to, to pass, like, normal normal folks. Yeah, that's 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 only the scary thing, this... Uh, you know, this, the killer next door sort of thing. That's, uh, you know, it's just, you never know. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. When was he executed or has he been executed? Yeah, he was executed, um, back in, it was 19, no, 2006. He was executed. Okay. So, okay. so he was sentenced in 94 and then his, uh, his execution actually took place in 06. So, you know, he was on death row for, you know, Almost, you know, twelve years basically. Um, when, when you do these books, do you have the opportunity to talk with 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 his family at all, or the families of the victims? Well, it depends on the books. Um, you know, quite often the families, understandably, they don't want to relive the events and have to face those emotions mm -hmm. again and, and, and go through that. So. Um, a lot of the time I don't even reach out to them just because I don't want to bring all that stuff up again, right. right? you know? Um, so, so a good part of the time I, I don't, I mean, you know, the Israel Keys case, the guy I mentioned a little earlier, you know, I did speak to the father of the young lady that 
uh, one of the young ladies that, that, that he had killed. Um, I did speak to his father about that for quite a bit, you know, over, over the course of various days and things, but, um, but that's not always the case. It, it, so it really kind of depends on the case and, mm-hmm. you know, just kind of what the, what the, what the vibe is. Right. Right. And then my other question to you too, I mean, even as a, as a newspaper reporter, there were stories that I covered that involved murders or involved fatal accidents, you know, that went to trial for, for like, you know, second degree murder and things like that, that affected me. And you know how you, how you're supposed to, even as a writer, stay neutral with these stories. Did you feel affected at all when you were writing this? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Every, every single time I write one of these, it affects me. Um, I mean, I, I make it basically my, my practice is when I'm, when I finish one of these books, I, I, I don't start another one right away. I take, I take quite a bit of time off away from it. Um, I kind of need to kind of come back to, to normalcy, so to speak, and, uh, kind of get out of that, you know, that darker, the darker subject matter. It can, def- it can definitely take a toll on you. So yeah, I mean, it, it definitely impacts me and, and and this one certainly did. I think that's what people don't realize about what you do, what I, you know, and what I do is you as a reporter, because you know the, the the media has it's a bum rap all the time. But what, like you say, what people, you know, what people don't realize is how much of a toll it takes on the person covering the story or the person writing the story, because you you get so involved with, with reading the papers, and I, I've I've done that with the court records myself. You know the stacks and stacks of court records, and you're going through that stuff, and you're looking for stuff, and then there's stuff in there like like, like when you talk about what happened to the victims that you just get you just get sucked in reading. Yeah, I mean it's 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 bad stuff, right? I mean it's yeah. it's not it's not light, fluffy, happy stuff. It's 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 you know very dark, bad subject matter, and it really, if you're not careful, you can it can bring you down with it. So. You know, or you, yeah, gotta, yeah, you gotta, you gotta make sure that you let that happen and take take precautions as needed. So Have that's why, right? That's why I said I always I always like to take a break for a while and just kind of let all that stuff, kind right? Of, you know, run its course and kind of recharge, so to speak. Oh, absolutely. Have you ever um, had to go interview anybody in in prison or or, or even county jail? Um. I, um, most of the cases I have done, the, um, the subject, you know, the, the serial killer, usually, um, they've already been either executed or mm-hmm. killed themselves, depending on the situation. Um, by the time I come to it, though, uh, I never really had the opportunity to actually talk to them, you know, one-on-one. Right. Um, in, in, in all those cases, so. If you ever do, I'll tell you from experience, it's a sobering feeling to go. Oh yeah, I bet. I mean, I've read read a lot of accounts of, of those sorts of things, and um, you know, I've I've talked to other um, people in prison for for murder, committing murders, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Just just not the not the ones that I'd actually written books about. Right, right. Yeah, it's a sobering feeling because when you get in there and and they shut and they shut those doors and you're walking down that you know that, that down that hall, following the red line or whatever color line it is, you know, and then and you've been searched and everything before you go in. That's when reality hits. Yeah, I, I'm sure it's a very unnerving 
environment to find oneself in. It is. I admire you. I admire you for writing these books. Uh, and 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 Anne Rule was another person I used to follow and admire with you know with her books as well. I've I've read some of your books, too, and I and I know what it's like to go through the you know the mounds of court records and try to make sense out of it all. You know, because you not only got the prosecution stuff, you you got the defense stuff you have to go through. You know, to, to read to, to make it fair, you know, as fair and balanced as possible. Yeah, it's uh, you know, to me, it's it's a lot like preparing for trial, um, you know, because I, I used to I used to practice law years mm -hmm. ago, and, and so to me, it's a, a lot of ways similar to preparing for trial, going through all that stuff. Um, <laughs> but you know, sometimes you know, depending on how old the case is that you're working on, it can be hard to find stuff too. You know, mm -hmm. I, I wrote about I wrote about an older case, and it was really hard to track down materials. To, you know to to go through and you know fortunately i was able to, to find some stuff eventually in an old archive but um but you know depending on the case it can be easier or more difficult to get a hold of materials you know and then a lot of times too these law enforcement agencies don't want to release materials too because they you know they consider sometimes that uh, it can be related to you know open cases mm -hmm. they consider open cases still mm -hmm. so so just getting the materials is kind of a challenge in of itself sometimes. Well, I mean, well, I could see that. And then you're using newspaper clip. You probably go through newspaper clippings too. And that could be hard because all the, all the archives are changed over. You know, there's the, there's the microfiche thing. And then there's, you know, everything's on computer now. So it's really difficult to figure out where to look for stuff. And believe me, people, microfiche is not the easiest stuff to, to, to manage. <laughs> No, no, I've, I've done that before too. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's a process in of itself for sure. That can take a while. Oh yeah, microfish is crazy. So, what's one of the hardest? Uh, you know, out of all the books you've written, what's been the most difficult book? Um, I mean, they've all been hard in their own way. You know, just because of the subject matter. So, mm -hmm. I don't know if I could point to one and say this was the absolute hardest one. Um, you know, probably the one I put the most um, work into, I guess you could say, as far as um, time and travel and and all that sort of thing, was probably the one with Israel Keys um, mm -hmm. that I mentioned. Um, I wrote a book on him called Devil in the Darkness, and um, I did quite a bit of traveling, you know, to different both out of out of state, you know, for that, and interviewing people and tracking down materials and um researching it and um so right that one was was pretty extensive but you know there's been other ones as well so it's kind of hard to say i guess mm -hmm. so getting back to um the gainesville ripper when once he admitted that he had you know once they picked him up you know from the time of being arrested to being con literally convicted how how much of a time delay was there in between that um, so between when he was arrested for the robbery, mm -hmm. uh, in Ocala, right. um, and when he was actually convicted would have been four years. Wow. Roughly four years. Yeah. That's a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Better late than never though. You know, it's, um, you know, could have, and, and, you know, one of the things that, I always kind of wondered about too is and i think you sort of mentioned this earlier too about kind of a, a wanting to be caught mm -hmm. um 
I, I, I kind of think that maybe some part of him did want to be caught because after he committed the Gainesville murders, he could have he could have taken the next bus out of town, right? Right. He could have gone, could have left the area, gone out of state, gone at least somewhere else in in Florida, you know, mm-hmm. far away from it. But instead, he stayed around there locally, and he's you know committing these robberies around there, you know, and, get, and then gets caught. So um, it, it's almost like he either wanted to get caught, get caught, or didn't care if he got caught. It just seems like with these guys, you know, when you read their stories and stuff, after a certain amount of time of them doing it, and this is what, you know, me doing my studies, even as a reporter and stuff, it just seems like after a certain amount of time, whether it's years or whatever, they get to a point where either they get sloppy or they do want to be caught. Yeah, you, uh, you're definitely right about that. Uh, a lot of times they, they do get sloppy or start to feel almost uh invincible right. like they can't be caught right you know right. and then they slip up and do something and then well you hold they are caught yeah absolutely absolutely what do you find to be the most challenge like, like, like you were talking about the different files and stuff and trying to you know work to put these stories together but what do you think is the most challenging thing about doing what you do well I guess, I mean, psychologically, mentally, it would be dealing with the, the dark subject matter. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, having, reading these horrific accounts and, and learning the things you learn um, about, you know, this darker aspect of human nature. I mean, that's the, that's one of the toughest part of it, um, part of it is. And then, you know, just as far as um, the actual researching writing process i mean mm-hmm. the toughest part is for me is a lot of times it's, it's just trying to track down materials you know mm-hmm. that are, mm-hmm. no one seems to know what happened to or you know they've been destroyed or or whatever you know that's logistically that's one of the, the hardest parts the interesting thing i find about them being destroyed like that and i'm not taking anything from law enforcement or anything like that but i know there's no, you know I, I realize there's not a lot of space to to keep track of all this stuff because I mean, it takes up a lot of space, you know, in, 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 in files and evidence lockers, evidence rooms and stuff, but you'd think they, they would keep it because you never know when, like, like even from way back, a victim may surface. Yeah. I mean, you know, in Rowling's case, I would, I would think that they have his DNA information. Well, I know they have his DNA information. Mm-hmm. That's how they, you know, linked him to the Gainesville killings. So, mm-hmm. So they do have that. So, if, you know, if, if somewhere down the timeline something popped up and, you know, it was able to, to match back to them, they, you know, they would have that available, I would think. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's just, it's like you said, you know, you kind of hit it on the head there. It's just they, they have limited capacity and so many cases going on. And, you know, these older cases, it's... I mean, like in this rolling case, like I told you how much stuff there was. There was just, right, it was right. just tons and tons of material. So it took up a lot of space. Um, so I could certainly understand why they'd want to get rid of it, especially since, you know, he'd already been convicted. He'd already been executed. And a lot of time had passed since then, you know. Absolutely. When you decide you're going to write a book, how, how do you find the person you're going to write about? Um, just general kind of 
looking around, you know, sometimes on the internet or things I hear about or, um, you know, maybe a related story I come across, um, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the first one I ever wrote was the one where my, you know, my dad actually knew the guy that worked on the case. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other ones, you know, a lot of times it's just kind of coming across information about it and then deciding it sounds pretty interesting and then looking into it some more and then deciding, yeah, it's, it, it's something that I think merits, a, you know, a, a book length treatment on it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I just, like I said, um, I admire you for what you do because, you know, there's a lot of work involved in what you do and, you know, and, and, and I get that, you know, hours and hours of having to do that research. Cause it's, it's not easy to do. Yeah, no, it's certainly, it's certainly not. Um, but you know, it's, it's something that I actually do enjoy as well. Um, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it if I didn't enjoy it. Um, it is a lot of work. Um, it, it can be very taxing. It's certainly very time consuming, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but I do, I do actually enjoy it as well. So absolutely. I know you got to pick your kids up. So what's next for you? Um, well, I'm actually right now I'm working on my book and kind of, kind of branching off a little bit from what I normally do. It's not, you know, it's not a serial killer case. It's actually a case about, a. um, a an african-american uh a young african-american male um, in new york city who was falsely accused of a murder and was convicted based on that false accusation and testimony and um sentenced to life in prison and actually ended up serving 13 years almost 14 years in prison um but then was able to get his uh get exonerated um, with the help of a private investigator who was a former New York City detective, of all things. Um, so that's the case I'm working on right now. Fantastic. And how can people find you, sir? Um, well, uh, all my books are on Amazon. Um, you know, if you just go on Amazon and I guess type in JT Hunter True Crime, all my books will pop up on there. Um, I also have a website. It's uh, jthunter.org. .org. Um, I'm also I'm also on Facebook a little bit, um, not as not as much as I used to be, and mm-hmm. um, and those are the main main ways to, to find out information about me. All right, JT, thank you so much. All right, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. It was good talking to you. Yeah, I'm gonna have to read this book too because I have read everything else you've written and uh, and I follow you religiously. <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate that. All right, sir. Well, you have a good rest of your day. You too. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. All right. That was a good interview, JT Hunter. And uh, tomorrow it even gets more gruesome. Tomorrow we're going to be talking with our good friend Kathleen Ramsland is going to be back with us. And she's going to be talking about cemeteries, things that go on at cemeteries and things that go on in embalming rooms. So we're going to be talking about that. But we'll be back on our nor- at a, at our normal time at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. So if you're interested in that, come on over and join us, okay? I want to thank everybody for watching today. I know we don't usually come on this early, but um, it was special for JT because he had to go pick up his kids and stuff, so we were moving schedules around. Um, visit us at CaliforniaHaunts.org or CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com if you want more information about the paranormal team. Let me get my phone because I'm getting, you can hear that thing buzzing. And that's what happens is I get like major 
messages coming through, and that's why I always have it on my focus mode. Let me just do that real quick. But um, it's been driving me nuts the whole show. <laughs> that's how life is. But um, let me get back on Do Not Disturb. Okay. All right. But, um, yeah, I, you know, and I, I appreciate each and every one of you for coming today and, li and, and listening to the show. Um, the uh, podcast will be out today at 7.30 for this show, 7.30 p.m. Pacific. I'll have it cleaned up more. So if you, if you want to listen again without the first, 20, first 15, 20 minutes of the phone calls, you can do that. It'll be a nice clean copy out there. But otherwise, um, I like I said, I really appreciate each and every one of you. Our numbers have doubled this month for downloads. Wow. I, I just can't believe it. My eyes were bulging all month as the numbers were coming in. So keep sharing the show with, with everyone. Keep sharing because, uh, you know, obviously you think it's a good enough show to share. That's what we want. That's what we want to share. Anyway, as a reminder, I will be teaching those psychic development classes. Uh, one's going to be next next week at 5 p.m. next Saturday at 5 p.m. Pacific. Psychic development one where, you know, it's just basic psychic development. And then the more advanced class will be on the 10th at 5 p.m. as well. And so you can check that out at California Haunts Meetup. If you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. As I always say, we're equal opportunity here. That way you can make somebody else miserable. But anyway, um, please do subscribe to YouTube if you're watching from YouTube. And that's a little ghost down in the bottom right-hand corner with the magnifying glass and the Sherlock Holmes hat on. And if you're watching from YouTube, please, please, you know, follow. Um, same thing with, with uh, you know, Twitter and Twitch and, 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 and TikTok and all that stuff. Because we are on TikTok. So if you're ever on TikTok, look us up, California Haunts. Because I got not only do I have teasers for all these shows, I've got other stuff over there too. Some stuff funny, some stuff not. But you know, and I'm telling ghost stories about haunted places around California on TikTok as well. So that's a nice opportunity to just check out our TikTok. And again, um, as you can see, the as usual, the ticker's on the bottom, and that's because I have bills to pay like everybody else, and we don't take any money for California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team at all. It all comes out of my pocket. So if you can find any in your heart to help a little bit to help me pay the bills for the radio show and you know make sure i have equipment for the team to go out and help people that would be great paypal.me at california haunts or if you're uncomfortable with paypal you can do that at venmo okay california haunts anyway i'm going to show you his information that share and where to get his books because he's got quite a few books out and uh that's going to do it and i will see you guys tomorrow at 6 30 p.m pacific and for everybody that came in late want to see the program it will be played tonight of course so, uh, okay, so here we go. His website is jthunter.org. And the book is A Monster of Old Time. And again, he's got uh, several other books that are really, really excellently written. And they're all available at Amazon. So check it out, okay? All right, let's see what it pops off. I'm already ahead of myself, huh? <laughs> Okay. All right. So anyway, I will see you tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific with Kathleen Ramsland, uh, Ramsland, and we'll be talking about cemeteries and embalming. Have a good night.